Welcome to this BGSM podcast, Dr. Davenport. Um, can I start by asking you to uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, please? I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Uh, I've been working in the area of physical activity during and following pregnancy for the last about 20 years. I'm an exercise physiologist, um, but I'm also a former national team synchronized swimmer for five years. Um, and so I've had a longstanding interest in uh, elite sport during pregnancy and the postpartum period for quite a while. Wonderful. And I'm sure our listeners will have seen a whole host of your work kind of over the last last few years. And we've actually got you on to talk about a qualitative study you published in BGSM earlier this year. Um, and that is around the experiences of elite athletes during pregnancy. Um, so kind of following on from what you were saying then, why is this such an important area of research? So we know that sport it provides this opportunity to improve your physical, your mental health, as well as key life skills, such as teamwork, resilience, and work ethic. But we know that women and girls are really underrepresented in most sports and certainly in sport-related research. Female participation is dropping uh, around the time of puberty and it continues to drop during adulthood. Over the last number of years, um, the International Olympic Committee, the Government of Canada, and many other organizations around the world have stated that they're really committed to promoting gender equality to ensure that women and girls have greater access to sport participation right over their lifetime. But at the same time, we also know that in many sports, the window of peak performance and the window of fertility overlap in a women's 20s and 30s. There are a growing number of athletes. Um, you know, in the last Olympics, we saw Elena Myers-Taylor. We saw in the Summer Olympics, uh, Allison Felix, and previously Paula Radcliffe. They're all these um, women athletes, female athletes, who are having peak performances in their mid to late 30s. We know that athletes are interested in having a family. And they basically face three options. Um, if they, they try to continue an elite sport, they can continue to compete, delay having a family at the risk of never becoming pregnant. Uh, they can retire from their sport to become mothers, or they can attempt to do both. But we know that there are very few supports and many roadblocks. Back in uh, 2019, Alison Felix published this really powerful opinion piece in the New York Times about her struggles to get maternity benefits uh, from her sponsor. She's one of the most decorated athletes in the world, and she struggled. And so after reading her article, uh, my co-lead on this project, Tara McHugh, and I decided we would talk to other athletes about their experiences and try to identify policies and research gaps that would help pregnant individuals start a family while maintaining their athletic career. In the end, if you don't have policies supporting reproductive choices in place, you're essentially excluding women from participating in sport after they reach a certain age. If we can support elite athletes through pregnancy and successful uh, postpartum return to sport, it can have direct impact on women and girls right across all levels of sports. We need these role models that can show young girls that they belong in sport and that their athletic career doesn't end as soon as they decide to have a family. Sure, it's such a powerful um, piece of work, uh, this. Before we go into kind of some of the main findings, um, can we go a little bit more into the kind of general landscape? What are maybe some of the myths or misconceptions that exist around around this space, around um, elite athletes who might be pregnant and how it influences training and the like? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that I do, I'm an exercise physiologist. I've worked in pregnancy and postpartum for quite a long time now. So I've probably heard it all um, from 
athletes being told, or pregnant individuals uh, across the board being told they shouldn't exercise above, above 140 beats per minute, that exercise in early pregnancy will cause miscarriage, that Valsalva should be avoided. These are all myths and misconceptions about exercise and pregnancy that are based traditionally on theoretical risks um, using expert opinion rather than on ethical evidence. So the problem that we run into is that it creates a vicious cycle where we can't do the research that we need to do to determine if um, the concerns are actually sound or not. We know that there are a subset of individuals, specifically elite female athletes, who when they become pregnant are engaging in high intensity exercise, Olympic lifting and other activities that are typically not recommended in good physical activity guidelines. And so by not doing the research and not dispelling these potential myths and having the ethical evidence which supports the myths that are actually true, um, we're really doing a disservice to these particular um, populations. Um, another example during pregnancy is there are medical conditions called contraindications where exercise is not recommended due to potential harm to either the mother or the baby. For example, women with twin pregnancies or gestational hypertension were told for decades that they shouldn't exercise or they should substantially reduce their activity levels, uh, again, based on expert opinion. And a year ago, my team uh, reviewed available evidence and found that based on empirical evidence that these individuals would strongly benefit from being active uh, during pregnancy. And we published this review in BJSM providing a very vastly different set of recommendations in terms of contraindications to prenatal exercise than has been included in any previous guideline. Um, I also led the development of the 2019 Canadian guideline for physical activity throughout pregnancy. We developed 12 systematic reviews looking at 37 critical and important outcomes, including labor and delivery complications, um, maternal mental health, fetal growth and development. Um, and we found that physical activity uh, over the, the, the course of pregnancy was associated with a 40% reduction in the odds of developing gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. You have substantial reduction in the severity of depressive symptoms, as well as having a decreased risk of having a large baby. But importantly, our evidence suggested no increased risk of having a miscarriage, small baby, or preterm delivery. We now have very strong evidence regarding the safety and benefits of being physically active uh, throughout pregnancy for both the mother and baby. And although it seems a bit hard to believe it now, Prior to the release of the guidelines, we had a lot of questions about whether it was safe or advisable for women to engage in even moderate intensity activity during pregnancy. At the time, our questions were really based around what was safe, but now we're more focused on what we can do. And so as researchers and um, clinicians as well, we really do need to change our view of physical activity away from asking what the potential harms of being physically active and engaging in exercise during pregnancy and focusing on what the potential harms are of not being active during pregnancy. I really like how we've gone into making this podcast as relevant as possible and just and extending it past um, elite, elite athletes. I mean, it's been amazing to see almost a complete sea change in terms of advice and and, and protocols uh, uh, and, and guidance around kind of exercise physical activity during pregnancy. And I think there's a huge amount of credit that goes to yourselves uh, uh, out in Canada who've really led on this. And um, what we can do for listeners 
um, is we can put links to those studies we published in BGSM in the show notes of this podcast so they can access them many times. And we, we'd have massively encouraged people um, to go to go and read that because it is it's amazing to see how the how the landscape has changed over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what we've spoken about so far, what you touched on there is that this has been an issue for for every every pregnant individual over, over the last few years and i guess that elite athletes and or pregnant 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 individuals who are elite athletes are a subset of that population and it's a really interesting population um, and it's as someone working kind of clinically with elite athletes or in team sports it's a question that i think is going to be increasingly um increasingly kind of targeted at team doctors physios etc and it's going to be around pregnancy and ha- what how that might influence what the advice is around competing and training um mm-hmm. what did your study find in this cohort can you maybe introduce maybe what you looked to do in the study and then some of the major take-home um, points from there so we recruited uh 20 athletes including 10 who had gone to the olympics um they were all elite athletes they participated in interviews asking about their experiences with elite sports during pregnancy as well as what policies and supports they would have uh, would um, have liked to have uh, supporting them in combining both their elite sport and uh, motherhood. They talked about the complexities uh, related to planning for pregnancy while training. They told us these stories about how they were afraid to disclose their pregnancy. Um, They thought they were going to either lose their position on the team, lose their funding, or just be viewed as being not committed to their particular sport. Um, They provided a a very wide range of recommendations. Um, They asked for very clear parental leave policies so that they could plan for their pregnancy, make a decision as to whether or not they could or were going to um, become pregnant while they were training or if they did need to choose to become pregnant after they retired. They were asking for um, really clear financial sports, uh, supports uh, for while they were pregnant and returning to uh, sport in the postpartum period. Here in Canada, elite athletes don't qualify for EI. Almost every other pregnant individual in Canada will get some form of support in the postpartum period, Um, but elite athletes don't qualify for this. Uh, They rely on their carding uh, and uh, governmental supports and sponsorship money uh, to be able to live and survive in the postpartum period. They strongly identified the need to have evidence-based guidelines that are specific to elite athletes. Um, The IOC produced a series of documents back in 2016, and at that time, they identified there was a distinct lack of information supporting elite athletes during pregnancy and in return to sport in the postpartum period. They want these guidelines so that they don't have to guess about what they can and can't do during pregnancy. Um, In Canada, Pregnancy is classified as an injury by many sporting organizations, and I believe that there are other countries in the world that also do this. In others, there's no policy for elite athletes in place when they become pregnant. And for many organizations, it's simply because they haven't had an athlete become pregnant in that particular sport. And so uh, based on these recommendations, it's actually part of a series of studies where we're talking to athletes in the postpartum period before they get pregnant, as well as uh, coaches and trainers um, and uh, policymakers as well, to try and develop um, best practice recommendations for sporting organizations that they can use when one of their athletes become pregnant. 
We want to try and be proactive rather than reactive and best support those individuals to have a more inclusive and supportive environment, which means that athletes don't have to make this impossible choice between having a family and having a sporting career, which for many is really their job and way of life. Sure, I think that really speaks to one of the things that really kind of hit me reading the paper was this kind of overarching theme of mother versus athlete. And it's, it's such a shame that obviously that is the case. What I'd like to think that most people listening to Beach and Podcast will be in the proactive camp. Um, and especially people hoping to kind of widen their uh, their knowledge and kind of how comfortable they are around speaking and using the latest evidence base and latest kind of scientific guidance to inform their conversations with patients and with athletes. And from a practical perspective, how can team clinicians, scientists, therapists best, best support athletes? And maybe we can break this down and start with maybe planning pregnancies. Um, we can move then on to, to training whilst pregnant. Um, and then we can touch on what you spoke about there, which is really kind of shaping support networks um, and systems to support athletes. So if we start by maybe by planning pregnancies. So I actually think that we really need to start talking to athletes about their reproductive health long before an athlete's even considering pregnancy. Uh, when I was a national team athlete back in the early 2000s, we didn't ever talk about the impact of training on the menstrual cycle. I had no idea what the athlete triad or reds was until I was doing my PhD and my fellow grad student, Jane Thornton, gave a presentation on her PhD work in the area. Uh, unfortunately, based on the discussions that our athletes um, talked to us about, we really haven't made major strides in education about reproductive health for athletes. Um, they indicated that they wish they knew more about the potential impact of uh, their high, um, high volume of training on fertility. Um, they wish that they knew the potential impact of delaying um, and continuing in sport and delaying have a family for too long where they might uh, require fertility treatments. Um, as clinicians, before pregnancy, it's really important to address health issues that could potentially impact prenatal health. Um, it's important that clinicians work with athletes to identify and treat conditions such as REDS, uh, eating disorders, anemia, or other significant health issues um, when planning for pregnancy. We know that um, many athletes who wish to return to sport in the postpartum period that they wanted to get pregnant immediately after one Olympics so that they would have enough time to recover and go to the next Olympics. Um, but oftentimes, uh, many would only have a few months to like a very narrow window to conceive and become pregnant so that it would fit into their plan. Um, but discussing before you get to that point about when to stop birth control, the best time in your cycle to increase the chances of conception, um, as well as the potential need and when you might need fertility treatments or even things that uh, egg freezing uh, came up in some of our interviews as well. They were all identified um, by athletes as things they wish they had known about, wish that they had talked to their healthcare provider or even other athletes about as well. But we, we heard that many athletes were really afraid to disclose their pregnancy from fear of what they were going to lose or have taken away from them. So if we can provide all, all athletes with some form of education uh, early on in their career about their reproductive health, while at the same time creating a more um, supportive culture uh, about reproductive choices, that we can support athletes to combine elite sports with motherhood. 
If we move on to, I guess, more like a, a policy perspective, the athletes identified a number of changes that can be made right now, right today. Um, we know that it's essential for sporting organizations to have really clear policies about the impact of pregnancy and postpartum eligibility on participating in events. Um, in the lead up to the 2020 Tokyo Games, we saw uh, a Canadian basketball player, Kim Goucher, who was initially told that she had to decide whether or not she had to leave her three-month-old breastfeeding baby at home or go to the Olympics. Um, a Canadian boxer, Mandy Bujold, was told she was ineligible to compete in the Tokyo Olympics because she missed qualifiers and then the Olympics were delayed a year because of COVID. So the rules were changed eventually. They had to go to arbitration to adapt these rules to allow both of them to compete. But it really, again, highlights the critical need that we need to have an update in sport policy to reflect the changing demographic of our female elite athletes. We also know that um, we have to have clear maternity leave policies and funding supports with a, will athletes um, return to sport at the same ranking or are they going to start back again at scratch? Are they eligible for funding during or following pregnancy and for how long afterwards uh, will they have some support? All of this kind of information is really necessary so that athletes can make an informed decision based on the information in front of them as to when or if they become pregnant during uh, their elite athlete career. I, I really like that this last section here because I think we've covered things that every team position working in women's sport can address, can focus on. I can probably feel a bit more comfortable knowing what they need to do now. Um, but I think the last bit you, you touched it on in terms of policies, it just seems like this similar to kind of the whole conversation maybe maybe everything around reds and reproductive health that might be a little bit kind of ahead of where of where kind of especially exercise and elite uh, athletes uh, elite pregnant athletes it is um but it's just very clear this needs to move from the the nice to do pile to the to the need to do pile um mm -hmm. and to and, and it may well mean that some people are uncomfortable um having those kind mm -hmm. of conversations especially with the lack of knowledge and research but we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable in, in this area. Um, so just for kind of BJSM listeners now, are, are there any other kind of tips that you'd have or um, or any kind of key messages you, you want to get across? So I haven't touched on uh, training during pregnancy yet. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, there are the 2016 IOC um, series of papers providing recommendations for athletes during pregnancy and the postpartum period really did highlight that there is a distinct lack of information specific to athletes at any level. We, you know, myself and others right around the world are working uh, to really address key questions about the safety of long duration activity, heavy weightlifting, high intensity training, but it really, it really can't come soon enough. You know, the 2019 Canadian guideline recommended 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity uh, each week. But these guidelines are much too conservative for athletes who are regularly exceeding these weekly recommendations on a daily basis. And until we have better information about long duration and high intensity activity, we are currently recommending that athletes work closely with their healthcare provider to monitor their prenatal health. So from a clinical standpoint, again, I want to emphasize it's really important to screen for medical and obstetrical conditions such as severe preeclampsia or intrauterine growth restriction where exercise would not be recommended during pregnancy. 
Um, screening should be done early in pregnancy and repeated any time um, that health status changes. Uh, we developed a screening tool to do this called the Get Active Questionnaire for Pregnancy, which has been endorsed by numerous international organizations now. Um, you need to monitor uh, weight gain and fetal growth to ensure that the baby is thriving and is healthy. Um, I was really surprised by this one that um, many athletes were not aware about the importance of pelvic floor health until well into the postpartum period. Uh, we don't talk about it enough. It's essential during and following pregnancy for everybody who becomes pregnant, not just for elite athletes. Um, most athletes reported that they didn't even know that they had pelvic floor dysfunction or didn't realize that the urinary incontinence that they were experiencing could actually be treated. Um, we often talk to athletes about reducing the intensity or duration of their training so that women are not overexerting themselves. And while there's absolutely situations where this is essential, it's also important to put it into um, context with the potential implications and mental health implications for an athlete who's being told to reduce their activity from training six or more hours per day to substantially cutting it down to say 30 minutes a day, which would fit in the current recommendations. Um, talking about the pros and cons of modifying training with an athlete is really essential and balancing the impact on the whole athlete and not just staying focused only on the implications or you know, often potential implications on the baby um, is really critical. Hopefully, maybe we can um, put some time in the diary for maybe 10, 12 years time. So if we said maybe two or three Olympic cycles, we can go back to some of these questions to see what's um what kind of progresses over the next kind of over the next few years um but no, honestly really appreciate your time and expertise on the on this podcast today um i'll make sure that the checklist you just mentioned as well we can signpost that in the show notes and we can uh, promote them via social media as well um if people want to find out a bit more about your kind of work are you on social media or is it best to kind of find you on research net or ResearchGate? Yeah, uh, so I'm on Twitter. Facebook page is a little bit, it's dying out with Facebook dying out, uh, but also Instagram. Fantastic. Well, um, I really appreciate all, the, all, all of your uh, expertise and time, uh, as I said. And yeah, hopefully, I'll oh, look forward to speaking to you in, in 10, 12 years on, on the BGSM <laughs> podcast. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for um, doing this podcast and allowing the athletes' voices to be heard right across the world. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. BMJ is delighted to invite you to our new event, BGSM Live, taking place online and in person on the 25th of May 2022 in Brighton. We will bring together the global sport and exercise medicine community to share the latest evidence and cutting edge research, as well as to give expert advice on managing patients in your practice and to discuss how we support populations to live healthy and physically active lifestyles. Key topics include physical activity promotion for clinical populations, low back pain in athletes, safeguarding athletes, COVID-19 and how to optimize health and safety, and what should sport and exercise medicine look like in the 2020s. To find out more and book your place today, please visit bjsmlive.bmj.com. 